Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Your hosts for this episode include myself, Niku, and my partner, Iptisam. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. On September 13th of 2022, 22-year-old Masa Amini was arrested by Iran's morality police for violating the Islamic Republic's strict dress code. Amini was allegedly severely beaten for improperly wearing her hijab and died three days later while still in police custody. Her wrongful death has sparked unparalleled protests in Iran, with women tearing off their hijabs, cutting their hair, and adopting the rallying cry of women, life, freedom. Four months later, we continue to hear the voices of men and women of all ages refusing to be silenced by the Iranian regime. Today, we take a closer look at this movement and its implications for Canada and the rest of the world. Our first guest is U of T professor Mohammad Tavakoli Talghi, who will break down the politics of the Iranian regime. Our second guest, Iranian-Canadian activist Lily Porzan, will highlight the impact of gender roles in this ongoing struggle. And finally, we will speak with Dr. Ali Desbani, who will shed light on Iran's complex security structure alongside the Canadian perspective. Our first guest today is Mohammad Tavakoli Tarhi. Mohammad is an Iranian-born Canadian scholar, editor, author, professor, and program director. He is a professor of history and Near and Middle Eastern civilizations, and he serves as the director of the Allahe Omidyar Mir Jalali Institute of Iranian Studies at the University of Toronto. Professor Tavakoli, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Of course. So this movement has been standing its ground for approximately four months now. And throughout this episode, we're looking to gain different perspectives on the rich history behind the Islamic Republic and understanding how the death of Masa has set off an entire population in defiance of such republic. And that has become easily apparent with the reaction to her death which was rather immediate. Within hours of public announcement, people were gathering on the streets of Tehran, near the hospital where she died, honking the horns of their cars in protest. Now, to those that know about Iranian politics, this clearly bears significance to a wider sense of tension and growing defiance against the regime for over 40 years. But to many listeners that are not involved in Iranian politics, could you shed some light on this frustrated civil society and what the Iranian people have become so tired of? Very good question. Uh, the death of Masa Amini triggered a really powerful social movement that linked tiny towns with uh, cosmopolitan large, large cities all over Iran, and from that point of view is unique. Mm-hmm. Well, also, what is unique is, is the emergence of a national-wide movement that is led by women locally. And from that point of view, it is really unique. This signifies the emergence of a national movement led by women, and women are senior partners in any kind of future political arrangement. Mm -hmm. Little Masa Amini, however, 
did not cause this movement. This movement, women's movement in Iran has been, uh, has a long history going back to the 19th century to the Iranian constitutional revolution of 1905 to 1909, where women wearing male clothes, men's clothes, participated in street demonstrations, and women were in the forefront of calling for equality. And at various moments in the course of the 19th century, we have always seen a kind of struggle between people who aspire to create a society based on equality and those who sought to create an Islamic polity with the primacy, supremacy of Shiism. Right. And thus, all of the Iranian political movements of 20th, 20th century, including the revolution of 1979, mm -hmm. had two serious contesters, those who wanted a society based on equality mm -hmm. and those who wanted to create an Islamic polity. Mm -hmm. uh, during the Iranian revolution, the clerics, while they had the networks, local networks, they were not as visible in the forefront of the revolution in the early stages, and women participated extensively. Right. And on the day after the revolution, it became very evident that this new republic that has been established did exclude women. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the early days after the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini called for the wailing of women and increasingly limited women's ability to work outside of the home. And thus, what we see at this recent national-wide movement is part of a political frustration that has been sort of coming out. My analysis of the situation is that while the Islamic Republic managed to dominate the public sphere, Iranian homes became the site for exercising equality. Hmm. Iranian women, girls, kids challenged the patriarchy at home mm -hmm. and cracked that patriarchal political establishment that was grounded in family life. Mm -hmm. And thus, we have a force vibrant force. But this time it's different because it is this frustrated sort of uh, this culture that has been sort of, uh, I say in a sense, equality rights has had its homecoming. It has grown at home. A kind of global vision has emerged in Iranian homes, particularly with the internet and ability to connect to the world beyond through internet. Okay. And in contrast and in contestation with the Islamic Republic, you have also emergence of a deeply secular kind of culture that is homegrown, that is now going public. Thus, I have a very positive prospect for the future. The horizon of expectation that I see is a uh, and, and in this movement that is led by women, an Iran that is democratic, is pluralistic, and is grounded deeply on the equality of 
men and women, Muslims and non-Muslims. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing to look at it like that as well. I never thought of it as starting within the home locally and growing in yeah. that sort of way. Yeah, they, 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 this is something that often people don't pay attention to, don't understand that this culture, courageousness, the courage that Iranian women have, mm-hmm. has already grown at home. It has already exercised and practiced how to challenge authorities, and now it's going into the public sphere. So growing in the private sphere, going public, and in a sense, there is a sort of, this marks a shift from the whole notion of secularism. Mm. Much of the secularism in Europe and North America has been public secularism. Mm -hmm. You have, because of the specificity, historical specificity of Iran and and the Islamic Republic, you have a secularism that is homegrown, that is now going public. Right. And speaking of this movement that is now public from within the home, what are your thoughts on how this one specifically and currently has guarded and emboldened resistance against the regime in comparison to previous protests such as the Green Movement that were very swiftly extinguished by the military? Yeah. Um, the death of Masa Amini, to sort of respond to that aspect of your uh, question, is that it, it really mobilized all of the uh, sort of dissatisfactions that Iranian have ha- Iranians have had. And in all aspects of Iranian life, sort of women have been able to take that into the public. And because of this sort of widespread, national-wide kind of movement, the Islamic Republic faces a crisis, serious crisis, serious crisis of legitimacy. And it's really scared that its end is at sight and thus is resorting to violence. Mm -hmm. And in the exercise of violence, it's also trying to shift the attention from this national white women movement by executing men and bringing attention to male Mm. and men. And and I think it has to be, while, while I understand and we are really angered by this uh, situation of executing innocent people and not going through uh, uh, proper legal procedure, it's also important not to allow the regime to change the story Mm. by presenting men as the threat to itself. It's this national-wide feminist revolution, liberty revolution, that is really uh, the source of great anxiety for the Islamic Republic. And in the long run, I think that they are not going to be able to overcome it. Mm. Uh, to overcome it, they have to be able to radically rethink the Republic. Right now, the Republic, uh, I refer to it not as Islamic Republic, but the guardianship Republic, a Republic in which the supreme leader is the guardian of the nation and the nation is viewed as a minor, intellectually, rationally minor, and needs the supreme leader to decide for it. Uh, the, this national-wide movement is challenging that conception and, uh, and, and, in a sense, is introducing a new republic that is inclusive of all Iranians, regardless of 
their uh, religion, ethnicity, languages, and gender. Mm-hmm. And, and in a speech you gave at uh, the University of British Columbia in 2011, I thought it was really interesting, by the way, you spoke of a concept known as cultural engineering, whereby the regime tries to find sorts of tactics to ensure that Iranian people will continue to obey the Islamic Republic regardless of its antiquation. You argued, however, that this has actually been causing a radical transformation among the population, kind of similar to the local home concept you were talking about earlier, where Iranians have come to view themselves as engineers of their own mind and their own destiny to transform the country into a more modern and stable state. And now, 12 years later, how does this relate to the current movement in Iran that is working to secularize Islam? Yeah, uh, it, it very clearly the movement indicates that the cultural engineering, which intended to engineer the minds of Iranians, people have shown that they have agency, they have ability, and they can resist the building that the Islamic Republic is trying to make. And actually, also, as part of the regime's engineering, they have counter-engineered. They have created this Iranian self that is open to the, the world, is global in its vision, is deeply secular, and also grounded in individuality. And what I find really amazing about this new generation of Iranians is the kind of self-confidence that they have and the visionary, the kind of visions of future that they have for themselves, that those visions are all negations of this cultural engineering project. So the, the movements that we have seen in Iran in the past uh, two, three decades all of them are indicative of the failure of this totalitarian engineering project that thought they can sort of turn uh, uh, citizens into objects. And Iranians have shown that. They are deeply wrong. Mm. And in your personal opinion, just out of my curiosity, how do you see this turning out in the next five, ten years? I hope. It's a critical moment, mm-hmm. and and the future in definitely there is this horizon of expectation democracy, mm-hmm. but the key issue is that how do people get there, and they get there without intensifying violence. Uh, one of the key aspects of uh, this home-growing sort of uh, strong individuality. And, and the whole slogan of the movement, women, life, liberty, is that they want to have public happiness. Islamic Republic has turned in the past 40 years the, the public into a space of uh, continuous mourning and uh, sacrificing uh, the happiness of the citizens. Iranians are desiring a future that is based on public happiness. People may be able to create in their own private homes a kind of homegrown, home-based happiness, but what is 
urgent is to take this into public. And they are also negating the Islamic Republic's violence. Mm -hmm. And thus is peace-loving at home, peace-loving in the neighborhood, and peace-loving in the world. And thus, the transition to this is very important. When it comes to a revolutionary struggle or revolutionary situation, we have almost always in all revolutions intensification of violence. But what is really essential is for all to pay attention to this democratic ethos and not compromise the democratic ethos of this movement because overthrowing the Islamic Republic and replacing it with another uh, secular uh, but authoritarian regime is not as attractive as what Iranian women are fighting for. They are fighting for, they, they are struggling against violence, against patriarchy, and for public happiness, and to secure, to sort of uh, ensure that the future embeds that public happiness, it's, it's a critical task that every Iranian, both Iranians at home and Iranians abroad in the diaspora, have to think and contribute to that. And, and my sense is that how can we, in our everyday interaction with one another, foster what Iranians have fostered at home and, and be open to others and listen to others and create a transition that is truly democratic. Wow, thank you so much. Our second guest today is Lily Porzad. She's the director of program at Sandgate Women's Shelter York Region. She's a social services leader with over a decade of leadership practices in the violence against women sector. She's known as an expert in gender-based violence, intersectionality, inclusivity, and accessibility. Lily Porzan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, uh, I appreciate for having me. Now, just to start us off, when do you remember first hearing the name Masa Amini? And what sorts of emotions did you feel? The emotion which was involved during those few days, basically, between the time that um, it was announced that what has happened uh, to her um, after the arrest and, you know, at the American uh, Morality Detention Center in Tehran until, you know, it was confirmed that she was murdered, basically, and uh, she was pronounced dead. I think mixed emotion, like attack, like came to all of us as Iranian women. The first thing that it came to my mind, Masa was 22 years old. Mm. I came to Canada 23 years ago, so she could have been my daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I felt that this regime, like 23 years later, a young woman who could have been like, I, I fled my country like many others for to seek safety in another country so another like I left my homeland to make a new safe home somewhere else like Canada and the same story is still happening the same thing the same brutality against women the systematic uh, attack to women and their body and their choices so that was the first understanding for me that oh my god 23 years ago I came to Canada and NASA is only 22 years 
and still we are dealing with the same brutality. But in the beginning, I think it was less defined. It took time for myself to define that merging anger, basically. Because, you know, when you are not in Iran after many years, you feel that you got over of those um, trauma. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to shift my mind and my emotion that, no, it was not over. It was right inside me. Just it was waiting for the right time and right moment to get out again. Like all the childhood trauma, all the all the traumas that I as as a woman experienced basically in Iran because of all, all the discrimination, including hijab. The time mm -hmm. that I was arrested and I was in the same detention center and I was uh, fighting with uh, my life too over there because, you know, it was like the experience was so brutal that I could imagine which area they would have kept her, which cell, which, which, which confinery, you know, uh, solitary confinery. Like it was so visualized for me that, and I'm sure for many, many, many other Iranian women, doesn't matter if they've been in Iran or not. And I think it was a collective pain. It was uh, also at the moment that we felt Iranian women's voice finally can be heard by the international community. So there was sort of rage, but at the same time, it was not just anger with no goal. It was like, we want you to hear us. We want everybody to understand what went on to Iranian women in the past 43 years. That That's the mix of emotion. And I have one visualized emotion that, um, on September 16, I reflected on it recently, basically. Mm -hmm. So I woke up and I had a day off. It was a Friday. Mm -hmm. And it was my dad's birthday. And my dad is murdered by the Islamic regime, basically. Yeah. So it was very irony for me that I woke up. I got, I looked at my iPhone and I saw, you know, Massa was pronounced dead exactly the same day that it was my dad's birthday and I took off to celebrate him I was trying to regulate my emotion and you know trying not to show all the mixed emotion that I had at that moment I went to my daughter's room to wake her up to send her to school and then deal with all those you know news and emotion so when I went to her room and I wanted to wake her up I pat her hair normally at night she braids them so like touching the braided hair it was like a slap on my face basically because i remember masa's face and picture with her braided hair yes it was like i was connecting with my ancestors with all the women in iran with all those women who were fighting and are fighting for their very minimum rights under my fingers, I felt I'm connecting with millions of girls and women 42 years ago, those who are alive or not, basically. Like that was a very specific, profound moment for me mm -hmm. that, you know, woman's hair made the history. And, you know, and I didn't know at that point what's going to happen. Nobody had the perspective of the revolution going to start from that point, but I could feel that something different is happening. Wow. I can definitely relate to 
your feeling of mixed emotions and the fact that it took a while to sort of boil up since the day that it was announced that she was murdered having that sort of those mixed emotions and that anger and that sadness rise up because I also remember hearing Massa's name more and more often over time that one morning as I was on my way to campus I was just reading over articles on my phone and I became overwhelmed with emotions of anger and sadness and feeling helpless and I got off the subway and I walked out onto Bloor Street and I stood at the intersection for maybe a solid three to five minutes and as odd as it sounds all I did was just stare at people's hair as they passed by me especially women's hair I just stood there and I watched how easily women went about their day with their hair freely exposed and I thought what a minuscule part of our everyday practice in Canada to think that women in Iran face the possibility of death on a daily basis solely for exposing their hair. It's always been with us, basically. But as, as I said, I think we were trying just to move forward with our life. Yeah. Uh, but there was a moment that, you know, as we call Masa's name uh, a secret name or a password for the revolution, I think that's so true. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And that's how it connected Iranian women inside Iran and outside we as parents we I always tried to disconnect her from my own past because I didn't want her to be traumatized with the same trauma that I experienced but all of a sudden with Massa's stories everything shifted mm-hmm. like now I wanted her to be involved now I wanted her to honor herself as a woman as an Iranian Canadian mm-hmm. I wanted her to know uh, and and celebrate her freedom here, as you said, for you to understand and not take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But those moments, I think, all of those feelings, all of those emotions, all of those realization and understanding, self-realization and understanding came to us with Massa, I'm sure. Of course. And I think my parents did the same thing with trying to disconnect from the hardships that are within Iran and the revolution when they raised us. But reflecting back now, I can say that I know my parents were different from typical Iranian parents in the sense that they were very immersed in Canadian culture and they wanted my brother and I to immerse ourselves within that and be aware of the democratic freedom and the rights that we had growing up in this sort of community. And I think that Now, in my early 20s, I'm really starting to learn more about the situation and about my parents' situations, and they're more open about the tough stories that you wouldn't typically tell a young child. And I think it's a a very hard process, especially reading over your stories. I read over like the papers that you wrote in your op-eds of just reflecting back on stories of your childhood and school of all the things that you're you were told yeah. in public on a daily basis, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of those stories out there. And I'm still trying to learn. And as hard as it is, I know that it is very important. I feel very proud to have parents that made it through that and to know people such as yourself, such as my parents, that survived that and are teaching younger generations the right ways to think about the revolution, this regime. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. 
I'm joined by Lily Porzan for a conversation on the gender-related roles of the Iranian protests. If you've enjoyed the conversation so far, send us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. If you have suggestions or feedback for our show, take a moment to complete our survey at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash feedback. So, as someone with a background in women's studies and a deep involvement in gender-based violence, you have experience as a counselor, a life skills coach, and a program director for organizations such as the Sandgate Women's Shelter. You help provide protection and support from the multiple forms of violence these women face. Now, while this protest highlights the brave Iranian women and girls risking their lives from the violent abuse of the Iranian military, why do you think it is important to take note of the Iranian men who are also involved in these protests? Well, I think, yes, this revolution started with massas murdered and intergenerational systematic abuse that they experienced. But I think it's beyond that. It's beyond, it's a collective voice of a nation, Mm -hmm. specifically youth at this point, that if you look at the pictures of all those beautiful souls that they lost their lives in the past four months, they are different. They want a normal life, but in a very beautiful, colorful way. And now the kids of this generation, they are standing up and they're not going to give up basically they want they want and they have a solid message which is unique they are not talking about a job only it's about the systematic you know uh gender apartheid abuse that they experience it's 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 beyond just having a hijab or not it's much beyond that and for the nation it's about they don't want the Islamic Republic anymore. So in their messages, even when they are attending to the uh, ceremonies for those who are being murdered by the regime, what they chant, no to Islamic regime, basically. So they are very determined in their mind. And to specific, specifically to uh, respond to your question about men, I think men and women, both they are making this nation. If men do not stand up and if they were not standing up behind woman life freedom slogan basically we could not take it forward as much as as a nation we could take it to the bigger scales of international scales and you know to be able to echo the nation's needs of change to the international communities also i think for in personal levels when when a young woman feels her brother, her partner, her father, they are not going to tell her as our usual, you know, practice of the past 43 years that, you know, keep quiet, like, you know, just don't say anything, don't say anything, keep yourself and no, go and fly, say whatever you have to say. So Mm -hmm. when we feel that we are supported, when women feel they are supported, For sure, you know, they have more power. They feel more confident. Like these these are the changes. These are the cultural shifts, basically, that we do see now uh, that men want to say that they are supporting their sisters, their daughters with the mission that they have, which is freedom. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing to see, especially videos that have been able to come out that have made it out of the country. You're seeing men risking their lives for 
their daughters, for their sisters, for their mothers, moving from that to what started as a regime of men that solely oppressed women to now see these men today, youth especially, but adults of of all generations, breaking those taboos. It's a beautiful thing to see. And speaking of the different generations, that leads into my third question, where in a paper you wrote for the Canadian Women's Studies Journal titled The Extraordinary Life of a Daughter of the Revolution, you included a quote from your grandmother when one of Ayatollah Khamenei's first legislations requiring women to wear hijabs was implemented. And the quote goes, you young women do not understand how it feels when male members of society decide for your body and tell you what you should wear. She kept repeating, you just don't understand what it means. I do practice a job and I respect anybody who chooses to practice it, but I have never told even my daughter what to wear. Now, a bunch of men who call themselves the leaders of a revolution dare to assume they can tell my daughter and granddaughter to cover up. And when I first read this quote from your paper, I got goosebumps, Mm -hmm. especially because it comes from the voice of a generation that many would typically brand as traditionalist, right? Or conforming with the norms and demands of religion. But this quote in itself really breaks that apart because when you peel back all the layers, it just comes down to the simplicity of freedom to choose. That's it. Just give people the freedom to choose. Absolutely. And I think it has a few more layers in it too, now that I reflect back. First of all, I have to say that my grandmother was a victim of uh, child forced marriage. She was forced to marry a man 20 years older than her when she was only 11. She had her first child when she was only 15. Uh, And I remember the stories that she told me about, you know, the experience uh, and how she survived. I think what what she meant like now, I was only four when she was saying that, but it's registered somewhere deep in my heart and brain, basically. It's secularism. It's a choice. It's a choice that what you want to do, what you, you, you do with your body, how how to dress, how to uh, make your life, basically. So I think what she wanted to say that if women's body and how they have to dress gets to the politics, then there's a big issue. Mm-hmm. And that's the secularism, which is the fundamental of democracy is under question so what she wanted to say i think was you guys are not going to have any sort of democracy if you cannot even decide about your own body and what to wear we are facing with a generation that they are beyond and above all those barriers like they they want freedom they want life they want equality yeah of course and that touches on you know like we've touched on multiple times throughout this conversation just looking at how these protests go beyond simple headscarves or just the morality police this deeper message that is involved behind this saying woman life freedom or in farsi zandigi azadi no for sure Mm -hmm. it's it's something that is worldwide has been bringing people together and it's it's such a of course it's very sad and it's it's a terrible situation, but it's a beautiful thing that's being brought out from it. No, I think that that's the turning point. 
Mm-hmm. To that strength that is shaking the mm-hmm. board, shaking a nation, basically, to the point that, you know, even the United Nations is taking two very progressive practical action about uh, toward the regime, which never happened before. Like all the uh, Western countries, finally, finally, they got to the conclusion that, oh, Iranian people are different from Islamic regime, which for the past 43 years, at least for the time that we are in exile, <laughs> trying to prove that to the different, you know, the governments like here in Canada, like since I don't know, 16 years ago, we were meeting with different governments from liberal to conservative, trying just to give this this simple message that Iranian people are different from the government or the regime, whatever that you're acknowledging and you're trying to make the deal. I think the most important thing that happened after Massa's murder and after, you know, the revolution shapes itself with its own identity, like the slogan, the art involved in this revolution, the songs, they are all so unique and so progressive. So many women who are practicing hijab based on their religion are like beside other women who do not want to practice hijab, like that level of respect, basically, to one another. Like they all got together uh, with one slogan, woman life freedom, because it's it's so universal. It's so, it makes sense without, without digging down uh, in political notions. It's about life. It's about freedom. Like everybody understands it. Even, even a little child understands that, right? Uh, it's about woman and equality. Yes, I agree completely. I think this is a major catalyst point and i think there's still a long road ahead oh yeah i think it's a marathon for sure so we have to be emotionally physically like and if in any any aspects we have to be ready we are we are talking about a brutal regime with uh which they, they don't hesitate to kill people yeah yeah and i think the past 40 plus years have really if anything they've trained Iranian people to build that innate strength in them to fight back and I think now is the beginning of the end there's it's the beginning of the end there's no way back to September 15th yeah that's what I can say Lily Forzan thank you so much thank you I appreciate it our final guest today is Ali Desboni He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College of Canada and the chair for the Military and Strategic Studies program. In addition, he is an associate researcher fellow with the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University and the Inter-University Consortium for Arab and Middle Eastern Studies at McGill University. Hello, Professor Desponi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. The recent protests in Iran are considered a clash of ideologies, which means there's an ideological gap between the Iranian regime and the people of Iran. Considering your background in religious fundamentalism, would you be able to comment on Iranian government's political ideology? Iranian constitution and Iranian official declarations have 
uh, aspects of what we call extremism in political discourse. However, we need to know also the behavior of the Iranian government domestically and externally, and how that behavior and conduct in different regions correspond to that official documents. In reality, really, Iranian regime positions kind of fluctuated. There is a big gap between the Iranian theocracy to reconcile between republic and Isla uh, Islamic pr principles and tenets. And it is true that from the day one, I must say, 1979, this rift between the public opinion and the Iranian official um, theocracy, let's say, phrase it that way, kind of the rift got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, demonstrations, student manifestations, public manifestations, different events. After the Iran-Iraq war, I mean, even in 1980, there was a civil war, kind of semi-civil war, over the very principle of Vilayat Fari, or the Islamic government. There was spor sporadically public discontent with different policies, and also within the loyal forces to the regime, which we used to call left, right, it became different interpretation in terms of how to interpret the Islamic government, Iranian foreign policy, and all that. So I must be honest with you, Iranian society is a very dynamic, very pluralistic. Yes, there is a gap, it's a significant gap, it's not only between the government and civil society, but also within the government. And the wave of repression, suppression, elimination that happened within the Iranian political apparatus uh, indicate how this political ideology more and more isolating itself. The segment of society, arguably the number uh, who are for the Iranian regime and for its political ideology, including those whose interests depend on the government, interests, not belief system, let's say around 10 million. So the rest of society, like um, 75 million, is kind of in a flux, opposition, disagreement, discontent situation. And Iranian government knows this and sanctions, international isolations, uh, and zigzagging in different political orientation did not help much the situation. Even within the clergy, loyalist, pro-government clergy. As you know, Shia clergy is a very dynamic and pluralistic clergy. There is uh, a wide range of opinion about the very concept of Islamic government and Vilayat uh, al in Iran. To start with Ayatollah Muntaziri, Khoi, and others. So honestly, we are uh, talking uh, about many, many, many shades of gray and gray zone of interpretation of, of political ideologies, even within the clergy and political forces and the insiders. We want to speak a little bit more about the security structure system in Iran. 
So Iran's security system is highly complex. There are a lot of different units, uh, the most prominent being uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or IRGC and the Council of Guardians. Can you please provide an overview of this power structure for our audience? And even within this, within the context of these protests, can you elaborate on how the morality police functions and how they police the lives of everyday Iranians? IRGC is part of Iranian armed forces, uh, is more external security, border security, and the survival of the regime. However, IRGC has an intelligence component. It's a kind of a CIA. Ministry of uh, Intelligence is another under the executive power, is more FBI internally. However, you have law enforcement structure, which is like Iranian RCMP. And this uh, morality police, or as they say it, guidance police, Gashti Irshad, guidance patrol, is under the law enforcement. However, what we need to know is that Iranian three uh, powers, legislative, executive, judiciary, uh, plus the security forces, plus the army, plus the law enforcement forces, they all, on, based on constitution, are under overarching power of the supreme leader. So supreme leader is, by the end of the day, responsible for the uh, orientation, conduct, and actions of these forces. Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif used to be questioned about prisoners in Iran, the double nationality prisoners. He would say, oh, okay, listen, judiciary power is not the business of the government, like Canada or United States. However, Iranian supreme leader cannot say this. He is directly responsible. It seems that there is no specific legislation on morality police in Iran. It was somewhere in the back burner and on and off, on and off. However, again, this is another example of the confused uh, action of the regime. Some forces, some institution within the regime tried to activate this morality police as a kind of a preventive measure because this question of hijab and uh, public liberalism, kind of, if you want to call it that way, was going too far, quote unquote, to their palate, to their taste. So they wanted to contain it. However, it badly backfired. Uh, Khamenei, I, I watched his speech a couple of days ago. Uh, he publicly retreated, but he phrased it not in a retreatment fashion. He said that, oh, don't call these people bad hijab. Call them za'iful hijab, like weak hijab. And they are our daughters and sisters. And we should not deal with the situation, with repression. The solution is not rep repression. The solution is bayan, jihad of explanation, jihad of clarification. All this, if you decode it politically, is that they know that he was forced to say that. But this is the first time that Khamenei publicly says such a thing. So it means that um, the law, it means that Gashtir Shad or morality police is a kind of a um, end of it. Or if they want to do anything, they have to be super careful, walking on eggshells, and just stop any arrestation or, 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 
or kind of a harsh measures and just contain themselves with explanation and stuff like that. So that was very interesting that Khamenei said that a couple of days ago. This is Beyond the Headlines. You've been listening to a conversation about the recent Iranian protest. We are joined by Professor Ali Tisboni from Royal Military College of Canada. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to add your voice to the debate by sending us a comment on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. So we're regularly seeing a lot of Iranians putting themselves at great risk to raise their voice against the regime. And the government has responded by using a lot of tactics such as censorship, public hangings, and so on. Would you be able to explain how and why these tactics are being used? And do you think the government can really dull the momentum of this protest? The government narrative on this protest was, is that we have discontent protesters. They are unhappy. Legitimately, they said that about the economic situation. You have other segments, they phrased it in the public official narrative as emotional young people. And they said a third segment that they, uh, the narrative seemed to be focused on that that the dangerous, quote-unquote, is influenced by foreign influences than people who attack gas stations, banks, or whatever, like public vandalism. And that's how they phrased it, the narrative. They were not very repressive at the beginning. Like, they kind of tried to watch the situation. It was, like, mostly um, public arrest, stuff like that. Execution just started like a few days ago or a week ago, if I'm not wrong. The government measures, I wouldn't describe it as massive execution and harsh measures. If they could, they would, but they can't because they are being watched and it's too costly for them. So they try as a kind of a pick and choose and mix some public trial and semi-public trial or hidden uh, behind the door trials, I think they are more in preventive measures. Like they are adopting a package of measures in terms of uh, policies of uh, denial access of young people to jobs or students if they are identified as protesters, that's one. Um, and also public execution as a preventive measures to prevent kind of, you know, dissuade others to join. So it's a kind of a denial of incentives and denial of access. There's a kind of deterrence. And at the same time, giving in, giving concessions, that example I gave from Khamenei's speech. And those measures could, based on analysis, ex external expert, for example, CIA, uh, CIA uh, director said that regime may be able to contain it this time around. But he said something, uh, 60 million of people are under 30 years old. So it's a ticking bomb and the regime knows it. They don't need to be reminded. It's going to again come up. Even some serious, serious experts saying that the regime maybe has two years to find a good solutions for the problems, economics, foreign policy, and other domestic politics. So uh, yeah, they can dull, 
the momentum. But honestly, it is just a date for the next time. It's going to happen again. How would you describe the international community's response to the protests so far? Um, some of the governments recently have been advocating for designating RGC as a terrorist organization or imposing more harsh sanctions, specifically commercial sanctions on them. Do you think this is enough? Or should we be doing more to support the Iranians on the ground who are putting themselves at risk every single day? Listen, in terms of sanctions, IRGC was on a U.S. list of sanctions, terrorist organization, for years. When U.S., when you have an entity which is on a U.S. list of sanction and terrorist organization, obviously other countries are not going to deal with that organization. That's for sure. So in terms of sanction, I think is that it is pretty much Iranian regime is maxed sanction because United States not only directly sanctions Iran, but also they have something they call secondary sanction, meaning that no foreign business, public or private, governmental or private, if they deal with Iran, they will be sanctioned by United States. So there is a really very preventative and accelerated Iranian isolation and this maximum pressure of Donald Trump since 2018, when he got out of the JCPOA. Uh, so what you're talking now is just adding up the pressure, volumeing up, it's already really boiling. It's already, re the regime is pretty much isolated. The next sanctions, which you want to make it really significant, going to be kind of an international law declaration war, meaning that the, blo uh, the, the blockade of the Iranian ports, the blockade of Iranian airspace, the blockade of Iranian export physically and geopolitically. At the same time, Iranian government was able to domestically produce not only military pieces, lots of them, not all of them. I don't want to buy in Iranian propaganda. But as a fact, lots of them. They're producing a lot of stuff domestically. And also in other fields like uh, artificial intelligence, um, genome research, pharmacy, pharmacology, medicine, uh, vaccine production, energy production, so many spheres. Iranian government succeeded to somehow create alternatives. So the real question is, and I think the answer is no, can sanction convince Iranian regime to come to the negotiation? I think no. However, if you can uh, bring together international sanction and domestic uprising, the kind that we're seeing now. Domestic pressure, international pressure, uh, and both together may kind of be much more alarmist for the Iranian regime. This time around, Iranian diaspora was very active. The media abroad, very active. Uh, but they need to show more independence. They need to show a bit more initiative. However, to their credit, a lot of Iranians in Berlin, in Toronto, in United States, in, in different places around the world, they came out 
in large crowd and they exerted pressure on their MPs and representatives and whatever to really ramp up. And Justin Trudeau, our prime minister in Canada, you can see, and the public pressure in Canada, especially from diaspora, kept mounting, especially the Ukrainian airplane kind of come together with that too. Uh, Justin Trudeau, a few days ago, he uh, used very, very harsh expression to describe Iranian regime, reminded us a bit of a Stephen Harper and how he viewed uh, regimes such as Iranian regimes. So that shows that uh, Germany, European Union, uh, France, it shows that the tone in the Western capitals are really, even China uh, issued a joint statement with Saudi Arabia asking Iran to show uh, actions regarding his nuclear program, but also the three islands in the Persian Gulf. So Iranian regime is really in a very hot pickles in terms of how this international pressures and also internal pressures uh, can come together. Once again, that was Professor Ali Disboni, who joined us today for an illuminating discussion on the recent Iranian protest. Thank you for tuning in. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Professor Mohammad Tawakoli from the University of Toronto, Lily Porzat, Director of Program at Sandgate Women's Shelter, York Region, and Professor Ali Tisponi from Royal Military College of Canada. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss the nuances of the recent Iranian protest, women, life, and freedom. Today's show was produced by myself, Ibtisam Musa, alongside my co-producer, Nico Tashtolat. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out our podcast and all of its episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.